We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hi, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Todd Bean. Uh, Todd is a phenomenal, phenomenal man. So a little bit of his background, uh, his academic background is on a different level. I'll go into a little bit of that later on. Um, his soccer background, he played college soccer in the US. He then played pro over here with the USISL, uh, moved on to the coaching side, got his A license. Then began working with Johan Cruyff in 2002. He helped build the Cruyff Institute for Sport uh, with him and then co-founded Cruyff Football in 2010. And then he founded his own Tovo Academy in Barcelona, which helps develop both players and coaches. So I caught up with Todd just before we kicked off the Modern Soccer Coach Worldwide Mentorship Program. And... I, I asked Todd, would he be interested in getting involved? And he jumped right at it, even though we didn't really have a relationship, didn't really know each other. So he just wanted to, you know, I sold him on the idea of, of what we were trying to do with taking coaches from one environment and bringing them into another. And that's something that he's big on with his Tovo Academy. So this, this was an, an absolute education for me, this conversation, um, both from a, an insight and then the inspirational piece, because... A man that is, thinks about soccer so deeply, but is also passionate about doing it the right way. Um, I, I just love this conversation. So enjoy it. Please give him a shout out on Twitter if you listen, if you like it. Um, you know, keep spreading the word of the podcast. But I think you will, you'll get a lot out of this here. Enjoy. So I appreciate you joining us today, Todd. Uh, I've got one question that I've, uh, you know, ever since listening to your podcast, uh, with Brian and John, I've I I really wanted to to ask you this here because it was it was a big statement you made on it. That the the game has changed. You know, I've I've written a fair bit about it and talked quite a bit about the game changing in terms of tactics and stronger, faster terminology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But do you think the biggest change is actually away from the field in terms of the communication side of coaching and the decision making, or has, has that been there all along and we've just overlooked it? Yeah, I, I think if I look at it and I think back to coaches I've had and then you we would you know, all of us I think would evaluate coaches we have, I think it's I think it's pretty clear that those that were able to communicate us with effectively in the way that we needed to hear their messages have always been the best coaches, haven't they? And I don't know if that's necessarily a generational thing or just a, a quality across the generations, which is a bit different, right? So I'm thinking of, for example, Bobby Clark, a former coach of mine, uh a good Scotsman that came to Dartmouth and Stanford and Notre Dame and just just retired, just uh, just announced his retirement. So I'm thinking, okay, uh, what are the qualities of somebody that communicates in a way that resonates with young people, let's say, and the players in their charge? And I think probably our best teachers and our best educators, our best coaches, be it in sport or music or art or dance, probably are always the best communicators, always the best at articulating uh, how they were going to help us in some way or another uh, uh, maximize our potential, right? So I look at it as an educator, as fundamentally a communicator, and ultimately it's to be a facilitator of someone else's journey. And I think 
great coaches have probably done that for, for, for the ages. Having said that, you raise a question of, okay, does that communication vehicle or uh, method have to change? I think, of course, it does, because I think when you're dealing with a generation that is now with phones and tweets and, you know, short communication and visual communication, then maybe that affects the way that we have to send the message. But I'm sure great coaches today are all still rely on some very good fundamentals, you know, a good connection with the people in our charge, the capacity to choose the right message and the right format with whom we're speaking and to couch it in, a, in, in, in the support and that it, that it honors the, the development of another person. So I think you have a, a point between the balance between what is the method uh, and what are the underlying fundamentals that all great communicators have done throughout time. And I think that's the only thing that changes maybe that I get 186 characters or I get a phone call or I get a, you know, in the future uh -huh. maybe we have, you know, hologram coaching or whatever it may be. But, but I think the fundamentals are good coaches are great communicators across the board and across all disciplines and bringing that message to the people in their charge. So the art of communication, it's, it's massive today. What, why are we, or are we, you know, in your experience and spending so much time in Europe, is it looked upon as more of a, does it, is it, uh, is it value more in Europe communication that it is in the, in, I'm talking about coach education here. I'm talking about courses, yeah. um, you know, cause it's not as valued in terms of intentionally, as far as I know, the, maybe we're getting through it with, with certain courses at the minute, but certainly not in the past. Yeah, you know, and I haven't taken, to be fair, uh, I haven't taken a recent course other than just for fun. I just did a, I just logged on to, you know, do a, like an F license just to see how they're using the digital format. You know, mm -hmm. I did my A license with Siggy Schmidt in the 1990s, and now I'm back to my F license. I'm going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going the wrong way, I guess. But uh, I thought, okay, well, here you talk about communication. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are licensors doing in this case, you know, the U.S. soccer or maybe the United soccer coaches, you know, what medium are they using? So that that's what I'm really curious about. But at the end of the day, I you know, as you said, it's emphasis on the reality is that um, communication is the fundamental vehicle uh, that we have to actually exact change in our players. So, um, yeah, that that maybe format in which it comes changes. But I, I agree with what you note is that why aren't we uh, developing educators uh, and focusing more on the quality of communication, types of communication, the art and the craft of communicating, and then putting in the message that we would want for the football specific, uh, you know, uh, players, right? So there are so many great people outside of football that can teach us so much about the art of communication, how to affect change through words or through relationships. And I think we don't do a good job in football, whether it's in Spain or, or in England or in the United States, at looking outside the walls of the football of federation to bring in these experts. And I think that's where each federation and all federations fail a bit. We can learn from people that maybe don't know much about football, but they certainly know the art of and the science of communication. And I think we're a little too insular. If I'm critical, I think we're a little too insular in staying within these walls of football where we need to branch out much, much deeper into other specialists, if I'm, if I'm honest about it. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we just talked before we started recording there about about um i was asking you about kind of what what does a day look like at, at the tovo academy that you're working with coaches yeah. at the minute and you said that that you 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 like to facilitate the environment where they lateral learning you use the word where they they have a good experience with each other they learn from each other that and you take a back seat that is completely different from i've taken courses in europe i've taken courses in the us 
and it's very much where it's it, it's not an approachable or you know or you know you can go and talk to your your coaching leader about x y and z but it's it's not re- they don't really come across and is that is that going to be the future of learning is that something you see or is that something you just that comes natural to your personality um you know i've i've always been pretty realistic about the fact that uh, if somebody has to depend upon one brain and particularly mine <laughs> as it gets older then they're in trouble right if they uh-huh. have to depend upon one source of information then it's really limiting i mean anytime we put um, a group of coaches that would come here to the Togo Academy for the coaching course. Let's face it, there's more knowledge between us than there is in my my feeble brain, right? So uh, they they come because yes, they want to understand about how I my colleagues look at football and youth development training and and so forth. But at the end of the day, the value comes from and I just label it lateral learning. I don't know if that makes sense to people, but you know the reality is if we've got 15 coaches in a room and we're not taking advantage of 15 uh, brains who have uh, experiences internationally with young players, with girls, with boys, as women, different diversity of gender and age and experience and nationality, then we've just basically missed the opportunity that this course can provide. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one, I think we have to be realistic. I mean, who, who really can say amongst us as coaches that we are the ultimate being and source of all knowledge? I think that's arrogance, which I really want to avoid. I don't want all people to come to a Togo course and just swallow what I say and then, you know, write it down and then go off and do it that doesn't make sense i don't want the world to be dominated by a tovo training methodology what i told the coaches today on day one is a couple things are going to happen you're going to take bits and mortals and you're this is going to resonate with you or another thing could happen you could think that this is a crazy you know uh crazy foreigner lost in spain from america who has no idea what he's talking about either way it's going to be a reaction to those ideas and so the embracing of somebody's ideas or the rejection of someone's ideas makes each coach strong it, means it helps them define what they do and don't want in their own lives with their own children on the pitches that they're they're executing their craft uh, and from where they've come. And if we don't take advantage of the diversity of thought, and this is, I do agree with you, I've been to those courses where, you know, I know what the rules are. The rules are listen to the guru, yeah. give the guru what you want on Friday, and then you get a diploma. You know, we've all done that in public schools, right? Yeah. The math test on Friday, okay, whatever they said, but that's not learning. That's just regurgitation. Right. And that's just false flattery. What I want people to do, and I mentioned today, I want them to wrestle with ideas, my ideas, their ideas. I want them to challenge me. I want to be challenged. They want to be challenged. One, it's more dynamic. It's more engaging. It's more fun. And they make me better as an educator. And and hopefully I have something in return to help. So I do believe that the paradigm is wrong in most courses because it's set up. And you also think about your schooling. The teacher knows everything. You're supposed to learn some fraction of that and then give it back to them to get your a O-level math exam, but that's not really the world the way that works. The, the information that's available to every student, including, you know, certainly coaches, is that they have much more wealth of information beyond one source, and they should use that accordingly. So, I don't know. It's something that I've honed over many years. I'm not a young chicken anymore. I've made plenty of mistakes as a coach, as an educator, where I've gotten it wrong. But one thing we have to avoid in our coaching uh, world is arrogance, because like arrogance, I think, leads to, to ignorance, and then we're in real trouble as a profession. Um, so as far as mentors go, uh, you will always win the mentor competition with, uh, with your experience with Johan Cruyff. I would love to know what areas he specifically or how he specifically talked about yourself being challenged. Where, where did he challenge you? Yeah. So my first charge with, with Johan 
eventually, you know, just a disclaimer, became my father-in-law. Um, so I'm biased to obviously as a, <laughs> you know as a family member. But um, but just let's talk professionally with that aside. With that, you know, aside, and I'd say, you know, when I first came to work with him, we had this. Uh, I was telling the story today. We we walked in and we were. I was in his basement, of course, and it was exciting to meet Johan, of course. But we had a task to accomplish, and that was to create what eventually would become the Cryf Institute. But what was in our heads was just an idea and literally a fax machine in 2002 in his basement, right? So he didn't have a phone. He didn't have a phone even uh, upon to, uh, up until his death. He had no phone. So it wasn't about technology. It was like, like, okay, what are we going to do? What I admired about him is that, uh, and learned from him, is that you have to bring in people that you trust into your organization and give them room to succeed, but with an ex- tremendous amount of accountability, right? I think he's done this and players that have played for him and coaches that have coached with him will say the same thing I will say, which is the demands for for working for him were very, very high. Failure was not an option. It was going to be success. It was going to be about quality and it was going to be about results. And you needed that combination of both to, be, to keep your job or, or to accomplish anything. Um, so I would, you know, that high standard of, of this is the standard you must meet. If you can't meet it, it's fine. But then you obviously not suited for the organization in which we're going to work with him. So that that's one thing, uh, you know, that I, that I, I really think of as in terms of a mentor, right? Mm-hmm. High standards, room to meet those standards, but certainly the accountability to meet those standards. So it's not optional not to be your best, not to accomplish what you set out to do and not to follow on your own word and work work hard to, to, to meet those demands. The second thing, you know, when you talk about mentoring, I remember is that um, – he he never sat down. He was always on the move with the next idea. It was, he was never the former player that was looking back and and worrying about the past. It wasn't like, oh, had we won? Had we done this? I didn't win a trophy. I did win a trophy. I should have been best. I should have been second. It was never retrospective in the sense of what might have been. He was always literally on his feet physically. You know, like he just did sit down very much. We'd be huh? talking, but he'd be up and moving. And But he was always looking forward. And that's, I think, difficult um, when you've been at the top of literally the top of your game. You know, a lot of people that have been at the top of the game are looking back nostalgically for that moment when they were the greatest or they were considered to be one of the best. And that's what I found. I, I've never been at that level of expertise that he was in his profession. But what I took away from that is you look forward. You just keep going forward uh, and take on the next challenge, whether it was building the Cry Foundation to help handicapped children participate in sport, whether it was building the Cryf Institute to help uh, athletes be, have an education in sport management, whether it was, you know, advising Barcelona and restoring the greatness to that, that wonderful club or rejuvenating the two comps that I He was always, always looking forward. And I think even, you know, um, in his even as he was uh, passing away, he was looking at, you know, for us, meaning uh, for my responsibility with his daughter and with Jordi, who's out in, uh, in Israel now, or Sheila, who's involved with the foundation. It was very clear that he wanted us to carry forward, mm-hmm. right? Not look back at the past, even if the, that past included him, but he really wanted us as a family now to look forward. And I think that's pretty powerful mentorship. If, and I feel myself lucky to have him as a boss, let's say, but also quite lucky to have him as a father-in-law. Brilliant. Was that, you know, like you mentioned high standards there and talked about the, the value he placed on those. I, I He just comes across, he comes across as such an intense guy. Was he always, was he always on or was it, was it football that did that? Or was it just as like, would he have an argument with the, 
the mailman if his mail wasn't delivered in time? Was that <laughs> was it was it just football that did that? Yeah, no, I think um, you know, the funny thing is I would say with the mailman he would talk hours about anything under the sun. Huh? Very comfortably, very, very, very in an egalitarian, it's an equal manner, right? It wasn't about hierarchy. It wasn't anything else. He's, ironically, he would be more likely to have a two-hour conversation with the mailman about whatever under the sun uh, and be more critical with the, uh, the Dutch Federation leadership, for example. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Uh-huh. Um, he knew that he was the exception uh, for certain things in his life that he would be privileged. He knew he was an athlete that was going to live from his credentials for his entire life. He knew that he was uh, on one of the best teams in the world. He was one of the best coach, uh, one of the best teams that he had to coach. So he was more critical and on and more demanding, let's say, sometimes of the people that were in leadership positions um, than he would be, say, with uh, you know the here the parking attendant for example, um, because I think he recognized that leaders have a greater responsibility to serve than the people that actually do serve. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if this makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. if you're responsible for a federation, you need to be doing certain things that embrace diversity, that bring the community together, that use sport as a vehicle for social good. If you don't have those resources and you're not in leadership position. Um, then maybe the burden upon you is just to take care of your family and do the best you can. I think he knew the distinction, and so ironically, he was more—he would be more of a pain in the ass, say, to the the leadership of the world in whatever facet that may be, and more of a friend and an ally to you know someone who might not have had that power, wealth, or fame with which they could wield change. You understand what I mean by the difference, Absolutely. right? So yeah. those in power that had the power and the authority to wield change, he held much more to a higher standard and was much more discontent when they particularly would not accomplish what they could. Mm-hmm. Right. It, and then for the common man like me, he would say, okay, this is what we need to do. But of course he didn't expect um, us to, uh, without power or authority to have the same sort of, uh, you know, uh, demands placed upon us in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a pain in the butt, you know, I don't, I think <laughs> if, if you're a Federation president, uh, you know, you probably, you know, have a few choice words to look back on. I think Fong, in the end, because I think he did things for the right reason. He wanted players associations. He wanted handicapped children to have equal access to sport. He wanted athletes to have equal access to education. But to get those things done, you have to fight a lot of battles. And I saw him fight a lot of battles, but they were usually battles with people who were not taking that responsibility to heart and who had the power to affect change in the community. Big picture guy, isn't he? He's just a powerful, the, the impact he had on football and, and around the world will will never be forgot. Everyone will always talk about Cruyff and his his legacy has been passed on. And we always associate him with success in Barcelona and Ajax. But does he view, the, or did he view the Holland? Because uh, the reason why I'm asking this is because, you know, growing up in Britain, the English national team is looked upon as, as the, you know, the always failing, et cetera, et cetera. That, does he view the Dutch team that he played in as a as a failure or the fact that they changed the world for something bigger? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and I heard him say on many occasions, um, you know, in different, you know, speaking engagements or things said, and it was a, it was a legitimate question, like, um, and we can all come to terms with it as, as we may answer. He said, I wonder, he said, I wonder if we would have had the same effect had we won in Germany as we had by losing. 
Now, it's a bizarre thing to think about, but if you play that through, I've listened to it, I listened to him say that on many occasions. When you have this upstart Dutch, how many people were living in Holland at the time? 12 million, 10 million people. And you're playing in Germany. You, we know what the Germans were in Europe, you know, uh, you know, in the 70s and what they still are for Europe today, the powerhouse of Euro economically um, and, and, and otherwise. So, um, so when you have that kind of great team of romantic vision and the ideals that they were espousing and the way that they were putting it on the pitch and had they just railroad through that tournament, would they have as much powerful effect as they had from that tragedy, let's say, that 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 moment that you know almost shakespearean moment where they didn't win but everybody still considers them the best team and i think even frank uh, franz beckenbauer would con- you know potentially yeah. consider that to be the best team although they did not win the tournament so is there more power in that i don't know is there more power in the drama of the 74 team that changed the world but didn't take home the cup I don't know. It's a really good question, but he really contemplated that, you know, like he think he said, he says, name one other losing team of a World Cup that has had more influence on the world than that team. And he didn't take credit for it solely. And I think we would all be as football fans, uh, hard pressed to name a second place finisher in any sport that had as much profound effect as that Dutch team did in losing to Germany, uh, you know, uh, uh, two one in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but also he didn't, as I said, like there was never, I, and for me, there was never, I never got a sense of, you know, granted I was with them for, you know, for 15, 14, 15 years. Um, it was not a real, it's not like a sense of regret again, looking back and, oh, well, were we, you know, or mm-hmm. on, you know, or whatever it happens to be. It was just what had unfolded and what they accomplished and what they accomplished might have been independent from the trophy. The trophy would have been for a certain number of people, but what they accomplished was still accomplished because it did. As you said, there are so many people um, that still talk about the style of football that they put into the world. Mm. But there's been many champions of many champions leagues of European Cups. I mean, you take a look. I was with him uh, when we traveled to 2004, I think it was, if my dates are correct, into Portugal to watch, uh, you know, the Greeks. To be fair to the Greeks, I'm sure uh-huh, there's yeah, a few yeah. Greeks. But are we really talking about the Greeks as, you know, really, yes, as champions of that tournament? But are we really talking about what they introduced to the world in terms of football and style and the number of players that have come out of that system and the subsequent generations that they've influenced. I mean, I'm going to offend a lot of Greek people saying, but I don't even think the Greeks believe that they had that same effect, even though they have the trophy in their trophy case in their beautiful country. So I think he looked at, he understood very well the responsibility that he carried as a leader. He understood very well the responsibility that any coach carries as a mentor for young people and he took that responsibility very seriously it just so happens that his trophy case had a few more trophies than your average man but the responsibility is none less for you or i coaching a group of young people in our part of the world than it was for him i think he knew that and he spoke to that and i think he he articulated that very well beyond his playing days um and that's again we talk about mentorship those are messages that that we learned from, you know, I think some of the greatest uh, leaders, whether they happen to be famous or not. Um, he took that responsibility of leadership uh, quite, and it, and it gave him great pride. And I'll just end with this about, about, about him. I, I do know, and he has spoken to it. It gave him great pride to see a younger generation of people 
take over the reins. It, it took him a, a great pride to see Pep Guardiola, a pupil of his of the game, you know, come into his own, add his own flavor and succeed. I mean, this was the joy of the mentors to watch your young mentees flourish. And he took that to heart. It moved him and it mattered to him and it was sincere and it was romantic, but it was toward the idea. I, that's that's something that uh, I think everybody that knew him recognized that uh, he was going to be uh, live and die literally by, uh, with his with his ideals intact with respect to what leadership was and what sport can do for society. So um, that wasn't just for a website. It wasn't just for a book. It wasn't just for a photo shoot. Behind the scenes, he cared much about children and opportunity and the and the and the joy of sport and what sport could provide for people um, because it, he believed it to his core. Mm. Uh, and he passed away believing it to his core. And I think that's a powerful message, whether or not you have a trophy in your trophy case or not. Yeah, we've almost done a 180 in that in today's society, haven't we? That we've swapped uh, we've swapped trophies to and, and less fulfillment almost, like short-term, everything's short-termism in the, in the world at the minute. <laughs> right, results, right? You get the results then every... Well, this is the part, and this, this, this bugged him, it bugs me as well, and that is like, okay, so... If you win, then it justifies your means. I don't believe it. I think it does everybody a disservice. So uh, if you get the trophy, then great. We should applaud you. We should respect you. We should you know, follow your ways because, hey, at the end of the day, you got it done. It's just about the results. It doesn't matter how. I think that's one of the problems we see in society at large is that, okay, as long as you're famous, it doesn't matter how you're famous, right? Really? So I, I heard Billie Jean King and, and the Alton John interview um, you know, it was taped, but I just stumbled upon it recently where they're talking about what is fame and what is celebrity. I mean, it, it used to be that you were known because you contributed something to the world. Elton John could sing and can still sing and play the piano beautifully. Billie Jean King was a, Billie Jean King was a pioneer in her sport a champion but also a stateswoman for the sport and beyond and they were known their celebrity came from their skill their talent and what they contributed to the world what do we have now reality shows if you post well we have the kardashians with all due respect to their family so what is the value of that celebrity what have they contributed to the world in terms of an art or a craft or a concept or an idea or a philosophy but they're very famous aren't they yeah. I think that's changed dramatically. You used to be famous because you contributed something to the world. You contributed something to the craft to which you aspired, whether it was music or dance or art or literature or science. And now, you know, I think people believe that you can just be a celebrity because you, know, you post something that goes viral and whatever that may be, stupid, inane, offensive, or otherwise. Uh -huh. um, you don't have to look too far to the United States to see who posts idiotic things and gets a lot of attention for it. And I don't have to name any names, but it starts at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, and the negativity piece, to, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I, have, I have to talk to my European friends, and they're like, how? How does that happen? <laughs> how does the, the most... The most you know, important man in the world with respect to diplomacy and, and, and power and authority get a Twitter feed like that. I don't have anything to say other than that. It's irresponsible leadership, right? So, yeah, um, yeah we have to be more careful with our words and our actions, don't we? Because it's also, let's face it, I mean, everything now is, is basically real-time, live, and out to the world. So it, it, it does put an onus upon us upon to be... Uh, to be more disciplined about how we speak, how we articulate, how we respond to information, how we get on our phone and immediately react to a match. And, and I think that's also for our athletes. Yeah. Um, 
because they they can stumble in as we've seen recently uh with the boys uh, from la out in china and uh we, we can get into ourselves into trouble by irresponsible acts quickly and that can go global quickly and and maybe rightfully so but i think we have to be more responsible with our actions and i think um you know, in this area, I agreed very much with Giannis. You, you, you go to win. We're athletes. We're coaches. You go to win. But to say that winning at all costs is is acceptable in society, I think that's that's a slippery slope and quite damning. I think we want to do is celebrate those that win with the values for their opponents, the respect for opponents, respect for one another, respect for officials in place. Um, it's not that we don't slip up, but for sure, I think that the win at all costs mentality or the celebrity at any cost mentality is costing our society uh, globally uh, uh, too much, too much. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna read out your uh, your academic resume quickly here, Todd. Uh, I wish I wish this was mine, but this is yours. Degree from Dartmouth College, Masters in Education from Stanford University awarded a Rotary Scholarship for a postgraduate study at the University of Sussex in England, faculty at Johns Hopkins, English liter- literature teacher, who then becomes a coach educator. So that's a lot different from the English teachers that I had in school. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, the, the English teachers you had in school didn't have, didn't have the same school debt. <laughs> they were smarter. <laughs> they were a lot grumpier. Community college, it would have been a lot cheaper, and it probably I could have. Maybe I would have been more intelligent for it. Yeah, that's why your English teachers were smart and are retired now, and I'm still working. <laughs> what, 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 it comes with a lot of uh, student after, debt. After that, like after that, that academic background, what, what, how did coach education come calling to you? Yeah, you know, as I said, at, at Dartmouth, I was playing. Uh, you know, the D1 program there. And, and I said, Bobby Clark in his, in his first year, my final year had a big influence on many of us young men. Um, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest with everybody, it's like, you look through, like, what are you going to do? I'm like, okay, if I did one internship at a private equity bank in Boston when I was a junior at Dartmouth for three months in three days, <laughs> I knew that this was the best internship because it was the worst. I was sitting on the red line from Harvard Square going into downtown Boston, and I saw the next 45 years of my life fly by me, and I saw a lot more pounds, a lot less hair, and yeah, maybe a big house but and a dog and a fan. But I just saw the horror of what my life would be if I had to work in that environment. Me. I respect the people that choose that, but the best internship I had was the worst my life. After three days, I was like, I can't believe I have to last three more months. I, I only stuck it out because, you know, you're supposed to do that as a New England boy. Uh-huh. And the message there was, I knew that I was, I had already done, my first job was going to be the last job in my life. And I'm still doing it today, obviously. And hopefully, you know, today's my last day. And that is camp counselor. I knew that I started at 15 as a camp counselor and training at a summer camp on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire. And I loved it. And I knew that in one way or another, I was going to be a camp counselor for the rest of my life. So what do you do if you if you know you want to be a camp counselor and there's only summers so short, you have to do a couple of things. You become an educator, you become a coach, you become both. So I got to play. I got to coach. You get your summers with a lot of free time and explore the world. 
and you just stay in the balance between education, teaching, and coaching. That's all I've done. I've just the only thing I've done is I've just changed the label that's in front. So you can be at a professor, but it's still a camp counselor, just older students, um, or you can be a coach and you're still a camp counselor, you know, out on the pitch. So yeah. for me, it's a lifelong dedication to maximizing someone else's potential. And as you get older, um, it keeps you young. Because the people with which you work, you know, as you know, there your your players and students, they, they keep you young, they they keep you alive, they keep you current, they keep you engaged, they keep you challenged. So, as I said, I, if I was still sitting on the red line subway in Boston right now, my life would be miserable. But but I'm not. I'm out yeah. in the pitch tomorrow with a great group of coaches and a wonderful group of residence players we have here, and we get to go kick a ball around. I mean. To me, that's the luckiest job I, you can have, right? Uh, uh -huh. Working with good young people out in the open air on the Mediterranean Sea. You know, it's always been about camp counseling in, in, in a more sophisticated term. And so the the soccer part of it was always part of I wanted just to play as long as – I still play on Sundays with the veterans, right? So we don't run very fast. We don't pass very well. But it's a good excuse to get some fresh air. So um, I knew that sport was always going to be part of my life. And I knew that education, camp counseling, however we call it, was going to be another. So I've just been shepherding between the two. And that's why, as we've talked about, and I've seen a lot of your, you know, your messages out there, Gary, too. I think you look at, obviously, coaching beyond just the X's and O's of the game. Um, you, you talk a lot about character. So really, if you were just a coach solely then i imagine most of your messages out through your blogs or through your writings or your podcasts or your tweets would be about x's and o's but but that's not the case is it it's a lot more than that and i think that uh, i think that good coaches know that the x's and o's come and go but the qualities that you leave in your players uh, remain for a long time so you know, as i said you just get older and then <laughs> you pay off you pay off those student debts yeah and, uh, and you make a life for yourself but uh, i get imagine it. that uh, and my, my my 10 year old says you know he says it's the best I don't have a business card, but I guess if I had, I would try to fit it on it. He says, uh, my little one, Jordan, says, uh, when he has to say, well, what does your dad do? And he says, my dad coaches coaches how to coach. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Very okay, cool. perfect. There it is. That should go on the website, right? Yeah, that's um, brilliant. But, I'm, but, but, you know, I, I, yeah, selfishly, this is what gives me the most energy. This is what impassions me. And this is mm -hmm. what uh, I feel privileged to do and stay young as possible doing it, even if I enter into my 50s here. So. One of the goals of the, the modern soccer coach mentorship is to create more adverse, adversity, more diversity in coach development. So learning from different professionals and different cultures. How different are you as a coach since you moved to Barcelona? Yeah, much different. A much different one because, you know, you have the benefit, as we all do, is of, of looking back on some of your foolish ways. You know, I used to think that winning, I mentioned, uh, was the kind of the final result. Um, I got results as a young coach, but if I, I really look back on it, I miss potential on, on being more respectful, being more engaging, um, understanding the bigger picture. But I think that comes with age, doesn't it? I mean, uh, you really want to prove yourself as a young coach. So the way you prove yourself is you win. But as you get older, you know, those memories usually go to the relationships you had with your players, with your team, with your staff, and you start to recognize that, yeah, while winning was critically important every weekend, um, you put it in perspective. So I'd say I'm different for two reasons. One, that's just wisdom you gain from being, you know, growing out of being young and dumb and thinking that if you conquer the world with wins and losses, then you're a, a great person. That's not true. So you learn that, and then you start to adjust your attitudes and your approach to different and the second thing is um i hadn't met johan or had the opportunity to talk football with one of the masters of of the game um 
So I was a product of the U.S. system, and I played into that system. I bought all the books. I did all the licensing. And then um, when I got to here, I wasn't a young pup, but when I was in my late 30s and I was here, um, I started seeing the game in terms of time and space and a game of position play, much more like a chess um, than, um, than I would have previously. I used to think that the game was kind of a sum of its technical parts um, uh, and, and the coach it that way. Uh, but then when I met Johan and really started investigating, listening him to, to Pep or Frank or Eichhardt or these other, and listening him speak to anybody about football, he was always talking about position play in Dutch take position spella you know juego de posición here in Catalonia uh, or in Spain uh, and then we have uh, position play in English and so I really started to rethink the way I was even looking at the game and when you change that everything else has to change as soon as you change the lens at which you're looking at the game and that comes from me in this case uh, from from a master of a visionary of the game I started looking at the game differently. And when you start to look at the game differently, you realize you can no longer coach the game the way that you did uh, 15 years prior. And so that's where the Tovo methodology that I'm working with and still work on, you know, and still mm -hmm. wrestle with uh, and, and present to the world is comes from. It comes from a, an, an entirely different way than I would have uh, couched the game when I was in my 20s as a young coach. And that's, I have to give credit, quite frankly, to uh, for, to Johan for, and others, you know, Frank Reichardt and Pep Guardiola and, and Eusebio, who's now at Real Sociedad, people that I just watched coach and watched how they interacted with the game. And they helped me become, uh, I think, a bit, a bit more knowledgeable about what the game is uh, in its entirety. And I, and I owe that credit you know, uh, to, those, to, those, to those thinkers of the game. Would you say that's the biggest area of improvement needed for a lot of U.S. coaches? That positional play, that, that time space? The tactical yes. side again. One hundred percent, yes. One hundred percent, yes. I think um, if if more if more coaches get exposure to the concepts of angles, distance, timing, lines, and situation, which is how we couch our our terms in terms of position play, they will look at the game differently. They will understand the game differently, and by consequence, they will have to teach the game differently. Um, the other element I think that we are woefully inadequate in it is is teaching and helping facilitate uh, quicker cognitive processing and by that I mean I don't want to get in semantics with experts in neuroscience but by that I mean perception perception decision making uh, execution and assessment and so we front load here a lot because that's what uh, I learned from my father-in-law was just there are he, he said to me specifically once I'll never forget he said you know at Barcelona I could choose from a lot of players that can kick a ball uh -huh. but that's not that's not enough and so I'll always remember that, right? It's like, you know, it's not that difficult to teach a child how to kick a ball. But facilitating their understanding of position and facilitating their cognitive process so their perception becomes better, consequently their conception of options available to them and the ultimate decision being more effective and then to be able to assess and react and do that in milliseconds, that cognitive processing as we define it, that's not taught in the United States across the, I just I have to be critical we don't front load that we don't value that so what we do is we isolate skills and we break it down and we sell the books and we sell the t-shirts and we sell the water bottles because why that's the low-hanging 
Yeah. Kicking, t- teaching a child to kick a ball is the easiest thing we can do. And then we justify it by saying that, well, you can't play until you kick a ball properly. And then we never teach them the other parts of the game, which has to do with spatial awareness and decision making within the context of real challenges. Uh-huh. Maybe it's because it's so damn hard to do. Maybe because we don't understand it completely ourselves myself included or maybe it's just easier to do the easier route right and just say line them up and kick it so but i think we see as a nation what happens when you don't delve into cognitive processing at young ages you can't expect your national team players to be very quick of mind when you don't deal with spatial relationships how can we dominate spatial relationships we have to go to trinidad and tobago uh-huh. right which we should right so how how is it that there's 100 midfielders out of spain that are probably better than our best national team midfielder it's because we haven't front-loaded cognitive processing as being of paramount importance. And of course, and we haven't addressed the understanding of position play um, as other European nations do. And, and until we do that, uh, we will be a far cry from our best selves. And I think the recent, recent results are, are proof to that pudding. We had John Curtis on here on the first podcast last week. And John came from Manchester United and he was talking about the the value of resilience in young players, and that that's yeah. something like I, I'm a you know I think we're we're completely life is too comfortable out here for, for you know for the majority of club soccer players, but then I listen to your you know you talking and, and then thinking about players in Barcelona how do they build re- resilience when you're when you're living in a beautiful city with great soccer players around you and the best coaches what what's their resilience factor. Yeah, it's a good credit. I mean, they have beautiful facilities. I mean, keep in mind that when uh, Xavi and Iniesta came through, they were playing on dirt fields in the parking lot of Camp Nou, mm-hmm. literally, because that's when I moved here. Um, and now they have, it's going to be an interesting study because now they have perfect plush fields, you know, turf fields, uh, latest generation, and then green grass and beautiful locker rooms and a stellar facility. So we'll have to wait and see whether those uh-huh. facilities improve performance. But I think... Um, I think what you do is what you reap, what you sow. Is that the proper expression? So if I'm going to plant the seeds of, of intelligence and train it and nurture it and water it and, and, and watch it thrive, I will create at the end a harvest of, of, of intelligent players. If I ignore that or avoid that or pretend that that's critically important, then at the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to reap anything that resembles intelligent footballers. And so is it resilience? Of course, we talk about, you know, I know Angela Duckworth's, uh, you know, famous TED talk and book about grit, you know, and what that is and and what and tracking players. So it is character. So we speak in terms of cognition, which I mentioned, competence. Yes, you have to kick a ball, pass a ball, shoot a ball, hit a ball after you're 12 or whatever the age limitation is. (laughs) And you have to do these things to the greatest capacity to be an elite player. But you can't with those two, just cognition and competence, and without that third C character, you don't outlast the competition. You don't know what you just mentioned. You don't know how to come back from a devastating defeat. You don't know what it means to pick yourself up on a day that you don't feel like training, or how to pick somebody else up on your team when they don't feel like training. So I agree that resilience is critically important. I just don't know if there's a direct correlation between socioeconomic wealth mm. and resilience. That's where I, I don't have enough information, and maybe people will do studies or have done studies that can educate us all about that. I don't know if in football the fact that a California player has you know sunny sun all the time makes him more likely or less likely succeed as much as the training that they received since they were five years old i'm i'm leaning toward the assumption and it could be 
dreadfully wrong that we could reap a lot more out of our even comfortable suburban soccer players than we currently do yeah. because we don't train them well enough. Yeah. And, um, but again, anything I say, I could be dreadfully wrong. I, you know, I, I don't know if it's just that, you know, rags to riches story that uh, leads to ultimate, you know, do you have to grow up in poverty to be resilient? I think there's too many stories of that not being the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you do, of course, then you are uh, the definition of resilience, right? If you're born without the privileges that I myself was born into, I came from suburbia. I never lacked food, shelter, or educational opportunity. So I would rather wish that we had more children in the world that didn't have to, you know, come to resilience through 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 such pain and suffering. Um, and I think we can uh, hopefully avoid the pain and suffering by sharing our resources globally and just hope that we still have some good footballers. And I think at the end of the day, what we'll find is those players that through that combination of character, competence, and uh, cognitive intelligence are the ones that end up playing the game at the highest level. And we've all seen examples of some that have everything, but then when they get to the highest level, their character, for whatever reason, gets them distracted from their original purpose, and they are the prodigal son. They 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 kind of wash away their talent because of the people they're hanging out with or the discipline that they don't have. So without that character and without resilience, we know that you're not going to be a top-flight uh, footballer for sure, or you're probably not going to be a top-flight anything, are you? Yeah. So, all right. How would you do that? If you have any secrets on how you know the f- formula for you know developing resilient players uh, that doesn't involve forcing them into poverty to get out of it, <laughs> then uh, please pass along because I think we're all looking for those uh, those things. I'm sure there's experts beyond you and me that will be able to tell us a lot more about the efficacy of uh, of, of actions toward resilience. But it's so critical, yeah. so critical in sport because you go from the highs to the low, and it can happen in a minute. Uh, right you just have to ask paris saint germain about last year you know coming to barcelona yeah. about what it means to be on a high and then immediately be completely distraught um we, we this fall is the beauty a, of sport right yeah you know? but we That's, we fall in a trap as well don't we? so we'll, we'll call paris saint germain mentally weak don't we and then we'll call barcelona mentally strong and it's there's there's more to it than that isn't there like, yeah like, isn't yes we need to look deeper but you're right like uh, not something that I've just learned that basketball is great like this. I mean, I saw you know, see basketball. Yeah, you know, see there's going to be somebody from NBC or CBS or Fox or whatever it happens to be, and they're standing in the middle of the court. And the game's about to go, and there's the final seconds, and then the ball bounces, and the ball goes off rim and in. They run to the right coach and said, "Yes, what did you do that was all correct today?" You know, and it, had the ball bounced <laughs> out, they would have gone and say, "What did you do all wrong?" Right? It's, yeah. Some of the day we have to be realistic about what this is it's not it's not uh i always laugh at that and then the commentators yes they had the heart and they had the drive but had the ball gone the other way or the referee made a decision or the ball got under the post or whatever it might have been um they would have been just you know the opposite they would have run to the other coach and said yes tell us your secret success uh-huh. you know I, I think it's a little ridiculous because we want that quick formula i think yeah. what we do know in sport is that there isn't any quick formulas that you know you, you what you can do uh, is to put yourself in position for success. And then at the end of the day, there, um, you know, over time, if you're in the top two, then you're going to play more Champions League and you're going to have an opportunity to win that Champions League trophy. It doesn't mean on a given day in sport that you know all the secrets to success because the ball bounced your favor. That, I think, is a fallacy for sure. Mm-hmm. But over time, and, I, and I'll come back to my, you know, my, one of my mentors and Bobby Clark, over time, the consistency of his character and the consistency of the way he raised men in his charge 
I think makes him a positive leader. And it wasn't until very late in his career that he took home his first national championship in Notre Dame. But that doesn't discount that he was a successful coach at Dartmouth. He was a successful coach at Stanford, and he was a successful coach at Notre Dame, even if he never secured that championship. He had competitive teams, and he, he developed mature and capable and responsible young men. That is legacy. Yeah. in addition to that one national title that every college coach, I'm sure, aspires to achieve. You, you've mentioned right, Bobby. So, yeah, you've mentioned him a few times then, Bobby Clark, almost, yeah. almost as much as, as Johan. What can, what can Spanish coaches learn from American coaches? Yeah, you know, I think what we have, I think which is wonderful, is uh, a sense of uh, meritocracy. Um, you know, and I know that doesn't apply to all ethnicities all socioeconomics it's much more difficult let's be honest uh, it's much more easy let's say to come out of my suburbia simsbury connecticut and have success and go to the schools that you talked about because i had that support at home and i had some resources uh, we weren't a wealthy wealthy family but we were certainly had a running start in my life so i don't want to pretend that it's a complete meritocracy in the united states but the mentality of a meritocracy does pervade the, uh, throughout our, our country that if you have an idea and you can put your effort and you can find the resources to carry out and execute your idea, you can be respected for the success of your endeavor. In Spain, while that may be true, it is still uh, socioeconomic stratification of, you know, this family, this is the history. I don't know if it stems, you're, you're, you know, you talk about the British and the real blood or not. There's something in various sections of, of society within Europe that have, uh, that aren't necessarily meritocracy based. So I think that what, what coaches can take from that, from, from American coaches is um, there are a lot of great American coaches that maybe what didn't have the spook fed um, you know uh, start to life who have put together great programs who put together uh, great leadership qualities for their players but they didn't do it out of a culture that was just you know the Brazilian champions or the Italian champions or the German champions so I think in the United States what you find is that great coaches um, have come through without being given the keys to the to the you know to the to the global kingdom I have to. Every American that leaves American soil has to fight that battle. Mm. You ask Bob Bradley, who have, has had to do that, and, and even with his success in Egypt and and, and, and challenges up Ponzi. I mean, if you come from the United States and you go anywhere else, it's not like you just walk out and say, oh, okay, great. <laughs> but how many, oh, okay, I'm going to pick on the English now. How many English coaches, I'll use that term lightly, I say guys with accents uh -huh. have come over, you know, and you know, background you know the difference because you know football but how many times have we just shipped in the scots or the brits or the dutch or the spanish say oh because he has an accent they know about football mm -hmm. right and, and 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 i think that's what we can learn okay there are very bright coaches in the united states there are very capable leaders in the united states and just because they were born within the boundaries of the north american environment doesn't mean that they don't have something to offer a dutch coach it's just a lot harder to have a dutch coach listen to an american yeah because because you're not dutch Right. How, how do we, I think we can learn how do we change that? Everybody can learn about that, right? Yeah. yeah can, will that change? Will there be an American that coaches in the Premier League in the next 10 years? Can there I be? would hope so. I don't know. I would hope so. I think it's going to, I think it's, I think it's difficult to be honest with you because you're asking uh, one to be very capable and confident with a track record. That's, that's hard to put together. And you're asking an entire culture to actually embrace the possibility that 
meritocracy can lead to success because the very moment you lose your first match, there's an excuse as to why you will not be successful. So it's going to be very difficult the next 10 years to do it. Having said that, if you look at the success that the women's side has bred in the United States, I think that U.S. women coaches have greater credibility because their credibility is tied to the success of our women's program at the national and international level. So maybe, you know, women will have to lead us globally and then we can follow the more intelligent gender <laughs> yeah. and take advantage of, of the roads that they pave for us. But, um, you know, I'm over here now, you know, you're an international coach, so you know also the difference between crap and quality. So you know what's really about the accent and really what's about the hard work to be a good coach, whether you're from England or Scotland or Ireland or with or without accent, because so many kids here, you know, we live in an international community. One thing we can't, you know, hold accountable to our kids is, is their parents, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, you have to work a little bit harder uh, to be an American coach and have any sort of respect on the international stage. But someone's going to have to pave the way. So Bob did a bit of work and somebody else is going to have to take it a step further. And ultimately, I, I think in the next 10 years, what you've asked is going to be a tall task. Um, but having said that, um, that's what pioneers are for, right? I mean, that's what that's what somebody's going to have to go out and do and prove their worth. And they're just going to have to do it with 10 times as much scrutiny as a as a British-based coach or a Spanish coach or a German coach who comes from the royalty of European soccer, European, European football. Um, all right, last one for you. Just finishing off with the with the mentorship program that we're kick, kick-starting next month. Um, what areas would do you think young coaches need to be challenged in today? What would be the top two or three? Yeah, I think one is to understand at a profound level the art and 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 the craft of educating and then you can add football in afterwards so i think really being a master of the uh, work toward mastery in the craft of education and what you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the communication that's engaged uh in in great educating um and then i said the second thing i think you ha they have to work toward mastery and understanding the game and all its complexity but have the capacity to Simplify that at age-appropriate levels, and that's no tall. That's a tall task. That's no easy task. Let's put it that way. Um, that we have to work a lifetime toward. So, um, yeah, be, become, becoming great educators and becoming uh, becoming uh, artists and scientists and understanding the complexity of the game. Those are the two things that I think any good coach continues to work on for a lifetime. But they might as well get started when they're young. Yeah, because <laughs> it's yeah. a long because it's a long road, right? <laughs> Maybe they don't have to make the same silly mistakes that uh, that are I did. <laughs> Brilliant. Todd, thank you. Thank you. We've gone way over what I was, what I promised you I would take, but it's just been phenomenal insight, not just into coach development, but you've gone way into life. You've gone deep there for me. So I really appreciate that. And and, and hugely excited to have you on, on board for the mentorship program. And Listen, I want to thank you. I think this, the, the whole concept, I, you know, uh, and following Gary and seeing what you're up to and, and being putting into mentor relationships, uh, whether this is a pilot program or not. Uh, I think there's great merit to, to, to the deeds that you're embarking on. So uh, I'm proud to be part of it. I hope that I do bring value to, to the mentees that are involved in, the, in this program. And if nothing else, we're going we're gonna to learn a lot about the process and, and, and continue to prove. So I, 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 my hat's off to you for taking the step and, and putting this out into the world. And let's see if we can make some magic happen here. Brilliant. Todd, thank you so much for your time and, and have a good night. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Cheers, Todd. Thank you. Thanks so much to Todd for his insight and time there. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. 
I knew it was getting serious when I asked him the first question about how he thought coach education has changed or communication in the game has changed and he shared that he had, he wasn't really aware of the differences but he had logged on to an F license just to see what the digital format was like and my ears just perked up at that because I thought anyone that was an A licensed coach that was working at Barcelona uh, being around the people that he's been around that willing to go to that level of preparation and depth of thought of how we're delivering content as a coach I thought that was that was a, a phenomenal way to start and it kind of go went from there once he went into Cruyff the big takeaway for me was how he was how Todd pointed out that he was always on the move because as he said that's what you do when you're successful you're not really sitting around and you're not really you know just going off what you've already done you're looking for the next challenge and you're looking for the next uh, project and the next problem to go solve uh, and I thought it was really interesting how that was what that was a big takeaway from from Cruyff that Todd took and then bringing it all back then because that's the key whenever you're around people like Cruyff or Prep or Guardiola Mourinho it's all about bringing it back to what you know and talking to the people that are going to the Tovo Academy or talking to people online or talking to coaches that are looking at clubs high schools colleges all around the world how can we take it back and, and do it with our own players and that's where I think the the personality piece comes in so so important and you can see how Todd talks about the game, how humble he is, uh, how much time he has for people, how he enjoys being around different minds that, that stimulate his thinking and also disagree with him. So, you know, I think you can find pretty clearly that there's no right or wrong answer for him. He wants to talk and he wants to, to get in conversation that's going to push his mind into places that he is that he wants to go with the game. So I thought that was great. The the big quote for me was the the X's and O's come and go but the qualities you leave in your players always remain. And I wrote that one down and I'll I'll share that one when we post this on, on the social media. But uh, that was a big one for me. I, I recorded that podcast and it inspired me for like two weeks afterwards. I was I was on the go. That was that was a big one for me. So hope you enjoyed it. As always, uh, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the podcast. If you wouldn't mind just giving a quick shout out on, on Twitter or on Facebook or anywhere at all just to help spread the word really is what we're still trying to do. So trying to get as many of them out, trying to go in as many different directions as possible um, and always working on improving. So any feedback you have, please don't be afraid. Gary at modernsoccercoach.com is the email. Uh, Twitter is at Gary Kernin. And then Facebook is Coach Kernin. No, almost forgot that there. And then just join Instagram. Just join the Instagram world as well there. So uh, Gary Kernin on Instagram as well. Uh, so plenty of platforms. Please reach out. Uh, tell me what you think. And again, if you have any ideas or feedback, always willing to listen. But thanks so much for your time and energy and look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.